Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the second part of an extraordinary interview with Paul Weller, where he talks about his great new album on Sunset, as well as the highlights of his career from the Jam, Style Council, right up into the uh, the Britpop years of the 90s, um, fashion, politics, and everything else. And how was fame for you? Because you became very, very famous very, very quickly. Well, well, it wasn't that quickly. I mean... Come on, by 78, 79, you're a very, very famous pop star. I don't remember it that way. It was more the num- when we had a number one record, I think, really. I think up until that point, I can't remember when that was. 1980. We were really popular, but we were still, I won't say underground, but there was still... The radio wouldn't play us. After that was the thing. We still weren't getting any radio play right. And we didn't really get any until, like, the Eaton Rifles, which was 79. And then it all blew up big after that. So, But prior to that, it was kind of controllable and it wasn't like a pop star thing. I didn't feel that anyway. It became a little bit like that after the big records, you know. Once you've had a number one and all that, and it sort of changes things, really. But I still felt we always... I, wanted, I was determined that we'd stay credible and we wouldn't sell out and we wouldn't... Um, do anything embarrassing or, you know, let ourselves down. I tried to keep them steered and the, us steered on the right track, really. What was the pressure like for you then? Well, the pressure was to be more commercial and, and do more shitty press, you know, talking to the papers. So there was pressure to us to take this in because make it bigger and make it bigger, which I wasn't having, you know. I mean, everyone likes success, but only up to a point because the bigger it gets, the less control you have over what you do. And I was very conscious of that. And I thought, I'm not going to let this slip away and take go into someone else's hands, no way. I've worked too long and I've got too many ideas for it to do that. So it was always a bit of a compromise, but, but I tried as little as possible to compromise because I just wasn't fucking having it. I just thought, this is our thing. This is my, these songs are my ideas and, and, and I think I know which... What was the right way to present them and how we should present ourselves, really? But then, you know, once we've had the big records and the success, then obviously everyone gets off your back and leaves you alone. It's only when you're not selling they get on your back. How did it feel when you were doing those big concerts? You started doing uh, the really big concerts and you'd look out and you'd see a sea of people who, who, who copied the way you dressed. That must have been a very odd sensation. It, it was weird, yeah. There was parts of it that were exciting because I thought, fuck, we've come, become this big. And that there was another side of it I thought, we all look the same now because I was kind of whatever the audience were wearing I was wearing as well and I felt it lost a bit of individuality really and kind of a little bit sight of what it was supposed to be about you know but that's inevitable wouldn't it that always happens you know the more popular something becomes the more diluted it becomes really normally but that's what it was you know I mean the gigs were so exciting always violent always fights and I suppose the music matched that as well you know the music was the same way 
So they were the gigs were a mixture of excitement and absolute fucking fear sometimes because <laughs> it was. I mean, it wasn't just like a little scrap. It was like yeah. bang, the audience was partying and you know, and every gig, and I and I don't remember too many gigs from the whole punk days onwards, probably up until like maybe the eighties, early eighties, that were always like that. It was an extension also of football a lot of time and tribalism, as you know, around that time there's so many different little factions. But so it created this fantastic, intense, knife edge atmosphere. But at the same time I thought it's really sad, you know, the kind of messages in the song and they're all scrapping amongst each other. Or we're singing some song about unity or whatever. <laughs> but um, you know, sometimes when things get that big, the band the band and the people around it can lose sight of what it was about originally. But more importantly, the audience also lose sight of that as well. Not all of them, but the bigger it becomes, it just naturally becomes diluted, I think. How easy was it to make the decision to stop? Easy in my mind. Once I made a decision, that was kind of it. Uh, the hardest part was telling the rest of them. Starting with me old man, with John, uh, we were just, you know, as I've said this many, many times, but his first words were, are you fucking mad? <laughs> uh, and then being the sort of emotional coward I am, it was hard telling Rick and Bruce as well, but I mean, I had to tell them. And it didn't go down very well, naturally. We'd all been working for probably a good 10 years, in one way or another, towards this thing, and it was up and running and successful. So naturally, people were like, what are you doing, you know? But I just knew instinctively I had to go, I had to move on and do... I wanted to do these other things, try these other things. And I knew we wouldn't be able to do it as we were, you know. So it was entirely selfish reason. But then you've got to think, you know, all these years later, 40-whatever years later or whatever it is, it was the right decision, wasn't it? You know, I mean, at the time, like, when the Beatles split, when I remember that April 1970, right, my mum worked in a newsagent's. And I walked in one day to see her after school, whatever. And the Daily Mail or whatever it was saying, Paul, I quit. You know, I always remember that big headline, right? And I was just like, fuck you, the world's over, it's finished. Right? <laughs> I was just completely... But I'm so glad now they did that. Yeah. They didn't carry on for another. They're not still here. They're not still regurgitating the same old things and all putting out records that none of us buy, right? Their work is, is enshrined that in that period of time, right? And it's there for everyone to always see and learn from. So... It was the right time for them to do that. They couldn't have carried on in the 70s. You know, they could have done, but it wouldn't have been the same. And certainly not into the 80s. You know, imagine the Beatles, you know, with sequences and synths and all that. Do you know what I mean? It would have been shocking, wouldn't it? So even though I was gutted as a fan at the time, it was the right thing to do. So I guess that, that went into my thinking as well. The, the press, uh, the music press, were, were very indignant. Uh, and when the Style Council started... They, you were heavily criticised, but you seemed to enjoy that. You seemed to enjoy the antagonism. Yeah, I did, yeah. I mean, probably, you know, in a sort of childish way, I would just sort of egg people on as well, which I wouldn't do anymore. It's just utterly pointless. But I was into upsetting people and, and including my audience, really, because I just, I guess in an arrogant way, but I just thought, if you don't get this, right, then, you know, it's not for you. Whereas now I see it as like, if I want to do something different, I'm trying to take my audience with me. I would hope they come with me, you know. And it's not always, not everyone's going to do that, obviously. But I wouldn't try and make this kind of bridge or barrier between me and 
piss people off on purpose. I, I, I would now t hopefully try and encourage people, look, come with us, this, you know, let's go somewhere different. But at the time, I was very indignant about it and very, um, I was arrogant about it, really. I just thought, no, this is what I'm doing is exactly right. And if you don't like it, you've got it wrong, not me. I mean, you look back at those days now, hugely influential stylistically, um, the, all the graphics you used, uh, the clothes you were wearing, a lot of it very sort of tongue-in-cheek, um, but with a, this strong sort of mod ethic in there. There was lots of things going on there. It was a very sort of complex idea for a pop group, wasn't it? Yeah, it was, yeah, because we were drawing influences and inspirations from lots of different places, you know, including, like, a lot of British culture, you know, like all the sort of Kenneth Williams or... Joe Walton or Tony Hancock, you know, there was, we would talk about all these people and I don't know how much they fed into the music, but we very much saw it as a complete thing, you know, like a look and an attitude and a politic. It felt very complete to me, really. Because on the one hand, you are in a, a visual environment where you've got colour magazines instead of black and white newspapers, there's MTV, yeah. it's very colourful, very fluffy, sort of tail end of the new romantic era. Mm. And then on the other hand, you're writing some of your most strident political songs, mm. getting much tougher in that regard. Did you enjoy that dichotomy? Was that, that was just what I you decided fine. to do? Yeah, I thought that the dichotomy was fine for me. I thought... We don't have to be lip wearing boiler suits and uh, be anarchists to, to say these things, you know. We're still mods and we still love clothes and we still love dressing up, but we can have this attitude as well. We can have this also have these, these other alternative attitudes as well, you know. I was really out to question all of it, really. I mean, the way people thought and sexuality and uh, just to escape that kind of closed-mindedness that we were in. What do you mean, sexuality? Well, just the whole thing of, like, being macho and being aggressive and stuff, you know, and a lot of our... There's a lot of influence, like, gay influence as well, like, you know, reading Joe Walton and people like that. But I was against any sort of stereotypes, really. I suppose that's what it was. I just sort of started to see beyond that, really. When was it? 82, right, the Falklands, yeah? That was kind of like... That was a pivotal moment for me when I see the head, saw those headlines, gotcha, after they just sunk a boat and killed God knows how many people fighting over this fucking scraggy rock that no one even knew where it was or I thought it was in Scotland and you know and just the flag waving off seeing the boys off from the docks and I just thought it's sickening really they're off to kill people it was a very reactionary time in England anyway it's quite similar to now in lots of ways even though we're better informed I'd say generally as people but people were closed minded and uh, it was still pretty drab I mean the early 80s anyway I mean when we used to go to Paris and Rome and places like that and when we were touring and doing promo, we would see the most fantastic colours and clothes and stuff like that. And you couldn't buy that stuff in England. It was still kind of really, I thought, really dowdy and, you know, kind of hung over, still with a hangover from the 70s. So I wanted to see England modernised. That's what it was, really. I wanted to see, like, a modern European country and people's prejudice and xenophobia and racism... Things we're still fighting now, I know, but it was way worse definitely back then. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. My name is Dylan Jones, and I'm here talking to Paul Weller. You became quite strident, and as you, as you say, in a in a in a political period which was incredibly divisive. Yeah, and I know that you were an early an early supporter of Red Wedge. Um, yeah. How was that period for you? I thought it was shocking. I thought it was shocking time. Really, I, 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 country was decimated. I mean, when we were touring round, you'd see once you went outside London. You just saw how badly affected, like, you know, you went up to Stoke or Leicester or wherever, you know, went up north, you know, Newcastle, Scotland. It was bad, you know, it was, it was a, it looked impoverished, it looked run down. And so did a lot of the people, you know, and <clears throat> unemployment was at, a, at its highest it had been for a long time. Um, it looked like a, yeah, a country in decline, you know. Yeah. And, 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 and spiritually in decline, mentally and, and spiritually in decline as well, you know. Musically at the time, you seem to be on a real quest for experimentation within quite a tightly sort of knit group. Was that, um, and as a as a consumer and then as a journalist, the 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 interesting thing, the intoxicating thing, was it seemed to be that you were uh, you seemed to be writing material in these idioms as you were learning them. I mean, you seemed to be on a sort of quest in a way. Well, a lot of that's born out of enthusiasm, you know. That's born, that's born out of, like, getting into jazz and thinking, oh, we could, we could incorporate a bit of that into our music. I never once thought we could become a jazz band or I'm going to be a jazz musician. I wasn't, I'm not interested in that. But I just thought there was elements we could incorporate, um, but in a very naive way, we're looking back, you know. But that's just what felt right at the time, you know. I was getting into lots of different sort of styles of music. And... Uh, and a lot of modern R&B as well, you know. Obviously, I still loved all the 60s stuff, you know. But there were some great soul records, well, what I call soul records coming out at that time, as well, R&B stuff. Was it, not, not, not being a musician, I've never had the sort of access to this knowledge, but was there a sense that the keener you became and, and, and the more uh, curious you became in your sort of musical journey that you needed to play with different people, that you needed to write strong, uh, songs in, with different structures. I mean, how did that affect you as, as a musician, the fact you had all this freedom? I needed it after the confines of the jam because we were essentially a free piece even towards the end. I mean, we had extra musicians sometimes, but it was really us three. And I felt there's only so much a free piece can do, really. And I'd been in, in that band pretty much for 10 years since I was 14. And I didn't feel... There was other things I really wanted to try, other styles and whatever experiment. And I, I really didn't feel we would be able to do that. We were too structured to be able to do that, I felt. You know, rightly or wrongly, whatever. So I I didn't feel I could... I wouldn't have been able to do what I, what I wanted to try. I couldn't have tried out 
all those things in the jam. Definitely not. How do you feel when you look back, if you ever look back at those images from 83, 84, 85? What do you think of that? Uh, it was good fun. <laughs> <laughs> I enjoyed it, right? Because I knew how much it would wind people up and all that. So I don't know why I was like that, but I was anyway. Probably insecurity, I don't know. But um, I just thought it was good fun. I was fucking enjoying it and taking a piss and I, and I liked it. I enjoyed it. Because a lot of your imagery... Uh, and a lot of the photo sessions, very playful at the time. Yeah. You were a tough interview. You were a difficult man to interview at the yeah, time. Yeah, I don't remember. Did you <laughs> interview me at the time? Yeah, quite a few times, yeah. yeah. I don't remember, mate. I apologise. <laughs> um, I don't know what's wrong with me. I don't know, you know. I was still angry. I don't know, I don't know what. And... But, you know, I look back on it. If I, I don't care to look about it too much, but if I do look back on it, I think... That's just insecurity looking back on it. I don't feel like that now. And I think uh, my back was always up straight away. They don't like me. I could tell, you know, I could tell they don't like me. It's going to be, a, you know, <laughs> and it was all like that. Uh, but I think that's always born out of insecurity. I see it with other people, without naming names, I see it with other people who are all mouthy and nasty and whatever. And it's just because you don't really believe in your talent. But you did believe in your talent. I did, yeah. But I think in a sort of arrogant way, you know, I do believe I'm talented. And I don't need to go shouting about it. I've just shouted about it, which I shouldn't do. But I don't feel... <laughs> I don't need to go mouthing off and slagging people off and all that stuff. That's come... That, that's born out of insecurity, I think. I'm not talking about Margaret Thatcher, but I mean, I'm talking about other bands and music and... Your um, obsession with mod, the look of mod, the ethos of mod, very important to you. Um, but again... Uh, you've always struck me as someone who isn't a joiner. So why why is mod? Why have you taken mod with you in sort of five or six decades of something that you still adhere to as, as a kind of principle for, for Cause living? Because it, it's just the best. It's the best look. It's the best music. Uh, it's the best attitudes. The true essence of it. And uh, and. Once I got into it, I just knew that I'd always be into it. It was kind of like entering a faith or something, you know. And, um, and I still believe all that. I still think, you know, we won that war because we had all the best, <laughs> had all the best music and clothes, man. It's very disciplined, isn't it? It's very exact, yeah. And uh, detail is important. Um, but at the same time, I've pushed the limits on it, you know, I'm not just one of those people. I just it isn't just a. You can start off when you're young. You start off with the Fred Perry and the Parker, all right? Because you've got to start somewhere. Same as you start off with a greatest hits or a compilation record. But uh, but I, I think it's I think it's still important and it's still relevant and and still popular after all these decades because it has the it has the ability to adapt. And to and to change within those structures as well, and like the original mods, they were taking bits from everywhere. A bit of Europe, they were taking West Indian culture and music, American Ivy League. There was all these lots of different little strands going on. So it was a kind of way of like adapting. I always think in a, in a way of assimilating other other good influences and and absorbing them and and, and making them into yours. And you know, I, I still and I still think that's the essence of it for me, really. 
Do you keep stuff? They're, they're warehouses full of old old stage outfits. No, and... no, long they've long gone. No, I haven't got anywhere else. All my stage costumes. But do you keep stuff? I mean, are you a hoarder? I'm a collector, like most men are, but I'm not a hoarder. I only tend to keep the things I still use and still look at and still love. I wouldn't keep a lot of shit just for the sake of it because it was dates back to whatever. So I st- every few years I'll have a little sift through and get rid of what I don't use and what I don't need. Just keep what you need. What was the worst item of clothing you bought <laughs> as a teenager? It's not possible. <laughs> come, come. It wasn't possible. I'll tell you why. Because as a teenager, right, there was only great clothes around. There was great, if you was a skinhead or a suede, there was fantastic clothes. And if you were more kind of, you know, West End or sort of trendy clothes, they were pretty good and all. Up till 72, 73, in my opinion. Are you telling me you never made a mistake? Of course, yeah. In, in subsequent years, yeah. But up until 72, it's not possible to make a mistake. OK, your worst look? Uh, probably by the end of the 80s, I think. You know, that's the thing, right? I thought it's possible to survive the 80s, but no one survived the 80s. Right? When, I look back, <laughs> when I look back on pictures of everyone, me, Johnny Marr, whoever might be vaguely credible, right? we all looked daft. Uh, whether we liked it or not, we did. You can't help but get sucked into whatever decade you're in and you'll become a... There'll be something to rub off on you, sadly. Can you remember where you had your where and when you had your first suit made? Uh, my first suit, yeah, in Burton's, and it was a black mower, and I managed to talk the others into it. I said, we've got to get a look. So we've got to get some black suits, and that became part of our black suit and white shirt, black tie thing. Uh, and we all bought these suits... Again, you know, you've got them on tick, you know, you pay every week and whatever. And then we wore them for years. <laughs> we wore them for years. And we wore them on our first UK tour, right, in 77, where we did, like, 40 shows or whatever on the trot, or whatever it was. And we would be drenched. The suits would be absolutely, like, wring them out like this. And then we'd get them dry, dry cleaned as wherever we could and then by the end of the tour they'd all shrunk so we looked like fucking normal <laughs> wisdom <laughs> the trousers were up here by our knees so when you were on tour with the jam how many how, how many suits would you take with you no we only had one suits you're kidding no. me one yeah yeah at the first i mean we you know once we got into a bit more money <laughs> once we got a few more grand we were allowed to buy get more clothes but we only had one suit yeah we had to just keep washing them whenever we could. <laughs> uh, you're breaking my heart. Yeah, I know, it's shocking. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 